This is Friends or Fiends. It was 1969. Pedro Herrera was navigating the cool blue waters of the Sea of Chiloy, south of Puerto Montt, and east of Ancud, in an area known as Abato. The area is famous amongst historians for hosting a small naval battle that took place a hundred years earlier, in 1866. It was between a few Spanish frigates and what at the time, the bulk of the joint Chilean-Peruvian forces. Nowadays, it is a sleepy inlet that sits in between two popular ferry routes, and it's trafficked by the occasional local fishermen. Pedro was one of these fishermen, age 15, and he was fishing from a barge with his father when they wit- witnessed something truly strange. The following story is relayed by Pedro in the form of a letter sent to paranormal researcher Raul Nunez several years after the incident. The sun was setting behind the hills that divided the inlet from the Pacific, and the father-son team was preparing to disembark from their fishing spot. That's when Pedro turns to see a strange sight. Quote, It looked like a large tourist yacht, modern and nearly glowing white. But when our eyes adjusted to the glow and we overcame our initial stupor, we realized that the yacht was not on the waterline, but some meters above it. As it floated above the waterline, the pair looked on in awe. They could see No crew aboard the vessel, but they did notice something else. They noticed a strange sense of tranquility as they viewed the ship. Pedro described it as an unusual sense of majesty. This is another legend found in Big Chiloy Island, different from the sea creatures and Bigfoots we've discussed before. It does share a similarity with these tales in the fact that it is a legend that seems to repeat in various forms all over the world. This is the legend of Caluche, the ghost ship of southern Chile. The first written references I could find to the vessel was from 1910. It is a university document about oral histories and legends of the area implying that the legend goes back much further than the 1900s. Some trace its origins to the 1600s, 
when European pirates began to frequent the waters of the area. Like the Flying Dutchman and other ghost ships, the Caluche shares many similarities. It is usually seen at night, and it is accompanied by a strange fog or mist. It is seen in different forms, from an old three-mast sailing ship to modern luxury yachts, like the one Pedro witnessed. But all of these sightings share some details. The ship is always described as a large, luminous white color, often being described as giving off a glow. In addition, the ship is always described as playing pleasant music. In some versions of the legend, the music is meant to attract wayward sailors, very similar to the songs of the Greek sirens. The strange sense of calm that Pedro experienced also seems to be shared in most versions of the legend. And there are many versions of this particular legend, Caluche. The first is one that rings true to that of the Flying Dutchman. A ghost ship with an internal crew of the damned. Souls lost to the sea or seduced by the music are used as slave labor on a voyage that never ends. Some stories include the detail that the enslaved have their legs broken and bent backwards and attached to their backs. This apparently is to mirror another Chilote spirit, Mbunuche, whose mutilated legs are said to appear in the same fashion. Another version of the story is that Caluche is piloted by various wizards and warlocks that are said to live in and around Chiloy Island. It is said that they use the boat for transporting goods and throwing parties. The wizards are also said to take a journey on the vessel every three months. This journey is said to increase their magical powers. It is also said that they must summon a half-horse, half-fish creature to escort them aboard the ship. Less anger, Milebo, the king of the seas in Chiloite mythology. I've got to say, Wizard Booze Cruise is definitely my favorite version of the legend. But one other version seems to draw interesting connections to the research we've been discussing. This version states that the crew of Caluche, whether they be literal wizards or ghost sailors, is said to make magical packs with certain traders and smugglers. It is said these packs could be for various purposes, from allowing the party wizards to crash at your house, to illegal smuggling, to what seems to be vaguely implied human sacrifices. In return, the mortals receive good fortune, either large sums of money or sometimes more ethereal treasures. After the massive earthquake in 1960, which we discussed in the last episode, few people around Chiloy Island were left with their homes intact. The few who still did have their homes 
soon became pariahs. People felt that they must have made a pact with El Caluche. How else would they be fortunate enough to keep their homes without some sort of Faustian bargain? This version of the story also has a lot in common with the friendship group. The friendship seemed to make contact with various people in exchange for services, and they are given some kind of unlikely reward. Take, for example, Ernesto de la Fuente, who we discussed in episode 2, who was healed by a lung ailment by the group in return for his assistance. Another strange detail comes from an adjacent legend to El Caluche. The Serena Cholota is said to be a mermaid-type creature that carries the souls of the lost or drowned sailors to the ghost ship Caluche. This aquatic siren is said to have flowing blonde hair, similar to the supposed members of the friendship group. The blonde siren also seems to be employed in one way or another by the advanced ghost ship Caluche, similar to the members of the friendship and their union around advanced airships somehow involved in their nefarious businesses. We arrived in Quelion as the sun began to set. Quelion is the most southern city of Chiloy Island. A strong and frigid sea breeze blew across the city as we marched through the southern port. The town is a final waypoint for ships heading south through the aquatic passages of Patagonia. It has the air of a fishing town, but also services a variety of tourists who arrive for different reasons, although much fewer during the winter months when we arrived. Some, like us, come for the various boats and ferries that are headed south. We were there waiting for a ferry, in particular, one that would take us 26 hours south through the fjords. We boarded the boat at 11 p.m., and it set off shortly after. The ocean turned an inky black as the clouds covered the stars. Quillian slowly turned into glimmering lights, and the mechanical hum of the engine churned the ocean below as the lights slowly slipped over the horizon. Our ship, the Quellot, makes several stops on its way south mostly to other sparsely populated and picturesque coastal villages, usually dropping off salmon farmers who work in the surrounding waters. Occasionally the ship would stop in a truly remote location, where only a dock and a shipping container turned structure are the only signs of human life for hundreds of kilometers. The occasional adventure tourist disembarks at these spots, taking vehicles with four-wheel drive with them into the interior of expansive green and peak-clad islands. Throughout my research, I've come across a lot of possible locations for the real Friendship Island. 
It seems no one can agree on the exact location. There is a small island that is pinned on Google Maps as the supposed Friendship Island. And that's how it's written. It's written as supposed Friendship Island. What I've found is that this title is accurate, that the location is only supposed. The real name of the small island is Isla Lecticon. Its association with Isla Friendship is easy to find. It is reported that compasses do not work around the island, and many sea charts of the area include a small note next to the island declaring the presence of magnetic anomalies in the area. Others insist that the actual Isla Friendship is not the small Isla Lecticon, but the nearby and much larger Isla Kent. Many stories surround this island, including sightings of UFOs supposedly landing on the beaches there. On the island itself, human artifacts are present. Glass bottles filled with notes serve as relics to the various yachts and ships who have stopped previously on the island, perhaps also in search of the mysterious group. Others peg Isla Gomblin as the location of the blonde visitors. This isla sits further out into the Pacific, 25 kilometers from the rest of the islands of the Chanos Archipelago. The more isolated nature of the island lends to the idea of this being the true location, as well as the fact that the entire island is a national park and reserve which some researchers have suggested is a way for the government to monitor people coming and going from a potentially secret base. But these are just the most popular theories online. The story on the ground here in Chile is quite different. Most people I asked repeated a similar line. There is no way to get to the island without an invitation. Others claim the island can only be seen during certain weather or astrological conditions. Whatever they believed about the island, there was a general consensus that the islands commonly listed online were incorrect or unfounded rumors. However, the general area of these supposed islands is the same. All three islands sit inside the Chonas Archipelago around the latitude of 45 degrees south. And even those who believe in a more mystical island agree that it's probably somewhere in that vicinity. There is only one town that sits inside the archipelago and at that latitude. That is Porto Aguari. The town is a small one. As of 2012, it had less than 2,000 residents. It sits on a pair of islands, and as one might expect, the main business on the island is fishing. This small port was our destination. As the boat traveled quietly across the cool waters, we watched the sunrise and then set again. All the while, our backdrop was lush green forests climbing the peaks until they gave way to white snow 
that blanketed the caps. Around 2 a.m. the next day, we finally arrived in Porto Aguirre. It was dark, but shared similar attributes to the previous small and isolated fishing towns that we had stopped at. There were only two inns on the island. The first one we had a reservation with, but they tried to charge us double upon our arrival. At three in the morning, we were very fortunate enough to find the other inn, the only other one on the island, and we were able to get a room for a reasonable price. The inn was a long blue and white building with a shop and restaurant attached. It mainly serviced the seasonal workers who stop off here on their way to various salmon farms that are tucked into the nooks and crannies of the nearby fjords. We asked various people around the town about the island and for their opinions on its true location. In the town closest to the supposed area, most people had heard of the legend and some had attested to the fact that there were strange lights seen in the sky. And, just about all of them, didn't believe that the supposed locations online were accurate. A few did acknowledge that Kent Island is a location that many visit due to strange stories, but many thought it to be home of a phenomenon separate from the friendship group. The main line was still one had to be invited to the island, just to even be able to see it, let alone visit it. So here I was, in the geographical area that is said to hide the island amongst its inlets and channels. I was being told what I had heard several times since I started my quest, that it was an impossible task. This may or may not be true. But one thing I know for certain is that I'm not the first adventurer to seek the island. And perhaps there are clues in other adventurers' stories. In 1998, Paranormal investigator Rodrigo Fuenzalida was working for Televisión Nacional de Chile for a TV program called OVNI, or UFO in English. They had heard the story of the Friendship Island and interviewed Ernesto de la Fuente, who told them his tale of the people of the island, who had miraculously cured him of a potentially fatal lung ailment. Quinzelita and the producers of the series knew this would make a great episode for their UFO TV show. They followed a similar path I did, heading to Chiloy Island. There they heard stories of the Mightless Two, the only ship that is said to have permission to visit the island. They were told that the ship sometimes docked at the pier in Kamichi, to pick up or drop off people. They were told the people dropped off and the crew were often tall, blonde gringos. This story handed them their first clue 
the name of the ship. The team, being part of a national television service, had access to a lot more resources for their investigation and access to certain offices that the average paranormal investigator would never have. They tried to confirm the various sightings of the ship that they had heard. They were able to speak to the harbor master and Chilean Navy officials, and they found that they had no record of a ship by the name of Mytilus II in any of their files. For many, this confirmed what skeptics had always claimed, that the stories were fake, made up to get on a TV show. But what we know from previous stories is that the Midas II was stolen from a university and used as a smuggling ship. This could explain why it's not on the naval records. A quick paint job to change the name from the previous one and a small payment of hush money would be more than sufficient to keep the ship off of official records in a corrupt post-dictatorship government. Their investigation continued and they eventually secured a set of coordinates that would lead them to the supposed Friendship Island. From what I can tell, these coordinates were closest to the coordinates of Gamblin Island, just the one that was just a little further out into the Pacific. Global maps do not include an island at the exact location that they were heading. The Chilean Navy actually lent them a team and a patrol boat so that they could travel to the coordinates and continue their investigation. The boat, being manned by Navy personnel, was much more equipped than the average paranormal investigation team could ever hope to be. The ship traveled three hours south, heading towards the coordinates, before the weather got worse. The ship traveled three hours south towards the coordinates. The weather got worse as they traveled, which is a common feature of many stories that the island is protected by supernatural means. Eventually, they were forced to turn back. At least, that's what the sailors aboard told them. After failing to find the island, the TV show returned to Santiago and did what any sensationalized paranormal TV program would. They went to a psychic. The psychic told them that someone aboard the crew intentionally led them astray and into the bad weather. They believed that a member of the Friendship had actually infiltrated the group. Others have speculated that they were led astray by the military itself, a theory popular with the ones who lean towards the more human and Nazi explanation. But military-backed TV programs are not the only ones who have attempted to reach the island. Many other small-time investigators, similar to myself, have also tried to find the mysterious island. A writer going by the name of Sergio Paz published an article in a chronicle by the name of El Mercurio in February 2011. In it, he detailed his attempt to find the fabled island. He started his journey in Quelion, 
and went to several other small seaside ports and collected stories and interviews from the people along the way, in a similar fashion to my project. He also followed many of the same threads that I have followed in this investigation. Similar to the TV crew and myself, he came across the story of the Midas too, and also made the connection to the ghost ship Caluche. But after conducting his interviews with several witnesses in different locations, he came to these three conclusions. Quote, One, friendship was an island controlled by aliens who watched for the final collapse of our planet. Two, it was an island hospital. And three, the friendship would come from the center of the universe to southern Chile. They would have contacted Europeans who worked for them now. End quote. He believes the members of the friendship, who people have stories of interacting with, are actually just Europeans hired by actual extraterrestrials who remain on the island. An interesting answer to those who suggest the members are suspicious post-war Germans. I find it an interesting suggestion, especially given the advertisement we talked about from the engineer in Florida who seemed to apply for one of these alien jobs. However, I read what he wrote about the interviews, and I'm not sure how he came to that conclusion. The stories seem pretty standard, similar to the stories that I've heard as well. The I saw the Midas too, or I met two blonde strangers with weird auras. Personally, I think he made quite a leap to make this final conclusion, without much to back it up. But I do admire his expedition which continue to where I am now, in Porto Aguirre. As he was so sure of those three aspects he listed, he was also sure of the location. He came to the conclusion that it was definitely one of the islands I listed before, Isla Kent. The trip from Porto Aguirre took his group 12 hours in total, 10 hours in transit, and 2 hours on the island. His group was made up of others, including his wife, as well as a professional sailors and other adventurers. One adventurer was named Quoki. He told Paz that his wife had been diagnosed with lupus, and he had planned to search for the island long before this expedition. He had heard the many stories of miraculous healings, and went searching, hoping that the aliens of the island would be able to cure his wife. When asked if he believed in the UFOs, he said, quote, How won't I believe? There are those who say that they have healed there before. End quote. The expedition passed Isla Lecton, the island that is labeled Friendship on Google Maps. And Paz made special note of the strange magnetic anomalies that occurred around it. Compasses would start to spin, and he said that the vessel's sea charts had this noted. When they finally arrived to the island, they headed up an estuary, 
one of the few locations one is able to dock on the island. There Paz took special note of the bottles and messages that had been tied to trees nearby. The sailors he was with told them that none of the surrounding islands have this feature, that people specifically come to Isla Kent for some mystical reason. He also wrote of other scenes he saw on the beach of Isla Kent. Several yards out into the water, a ship's mast sticks out of the water in the shape of a cross, forming a memorial for the shipwreck that is below it. The story attached to the wreck is that a fishing vessel was caught up on the rocks near the island. The vessel sunk, but only the bodies of the captain and the first mate were found. The rest of the sailors were never seen again. A story that definitely lends towards the mysterious nature of the island. However, Paz found no evidence of human structures or anything that would resemble an extraterrestrial hospital that Paz believed the island was home to. Instead, he found a beautiful beach bordered by thick, lush forests and the occasional piece of plastic waste that had washed ashore. But Paz was not entirely turned off of his theory, and still continued to think that this could possibly be the Friendship Island. He had heard tell of two easlets that are only sometimes attached to the island. As we've heard before with this story, these easlets are only visual under specific oceanographic or astrological conditions. Despite finding no evidence on the actual Isla Kent, Paz believed that one of these easlets, which was currently submerged, was the true home to the alien hospital that he was looking for. That's not to say a few strange things didn't happen to the group on the island, but nothing definitive. His wife was gripped by a powerful headache and had to rest for half an hour. Nothing else was noted on the island, but however, on the boat ride back, Paz was going through his photos, and he found one photo particularly odd. Quote, There is a weird one. It is a photo of, a, of the cross in which a white dot appears, and under it, a halo of light. End quote. The cross he is referring to is the ship mast of the sunken vessel. I found this particularly interesting. I wasn't able to find a copy of the photo online, but the description of the object is oddly similar to the weird photo of the white orb that we took in Colburn. About the photo, Paz said, quote, A UFO? An error in the CD? No idea. I only know that it is the most unusual photo I have taken. I also really know that this is one of the strangest trips, probably the most absurd, the freakiest, and despite everything, I want to return. End quote. His expedition returned to Porto Aguari as a large storm followed them.
Back in Puerto Aguirre, the sun had risen, and we began to ask around town in search of clues that could help lead us to the legendary UFO island. The traffic had not increased in the daytime. The streets were as empty as they were when we arrived, six hours earlier at 2 a.m. The overcast skies gave way to a light drizzle from time to time, falling on the empty streets and houses. It had the air of a ghost town. This was most likely due to the fact that it was the off-season, for what little tourists visit, and for the fishermen who make their living around the port. We decided to ask around, but found various public institutions were vacant. The school was closed, and no firemen were present at the firehouse. We hiked up to a few locations that cater specifically to tourists, like expensive cabanas, but we still couldn't find anyone. Finally, we headed back down to the docks. There we found a few fishermen who had heard of the island. They told us that it would be near impossible to find a boat to take us to the location, especially at this time of year. We asked if they would take us on their ship, and after a brief discussion, they quoted a price over a thousand U.S. dollars for the day trip on their vessel, a price that was obviously ridiculous and far outside of our budget. We headed next to a little shop, one of the few shops that were actually open. The interior of the shop had the air and look of an old-timey general store that one might find on the edge of the western frontier a hundred years ago. There the shop owner was more willing to discuss the interesting legend. He had lots to say. One got the sense he was a bit of a town gossip. He added that the UFOs had been seen around the surrounding islands quite often, and even some recently. He added lots of details about the witnesses who reported the sightings, some positive, some negative. He was not able to help us find a boat, however. We returned to our hotel and discussed what little clues we had. The owner of the hotel prepared a wonderful meal and overheard us discussing our UFO mission. She told us that her husband had a boat and that maybe he could help. He came into the dining room shortly after and informed us he actually had a lead for us to follow. He was heading out to bring supplies to an old couple who lived completely secluded on a small island a few kilometers from the port. He told us that they had often shared stories of strange sightings that occurred around the island and that we were welcome to come along with him to interview them. Having run out of leads at this point, we happily agreed. We hired his boat to not only take us to interview the elderly couple, but to investigate their claims of the surrounding islands. We untethered his small wooden craft painted in vibrant blue and green colors. It was powered by a small horsepower engine and a pair of wooden paddles as a backup, a very traditional small Chilean vessel. It was skippered by our guide, the husband of the hotel owner, and one additional sailor. My assistant and I boarded the ship, and the four of us set out on our small journey to the surrounding islands. As our boat gently hopped over the waves, 
Sunlight cut through the clouds in luminescent strips. Heavy clouds began to fall off the tall peaks of the fjords as the day grew longer. A pod of dolphins briefly followed alongside our boat as we passed large towering cliffs that appeared to give way to a small valley that lies in the center of the forested landscape. The dolphins splash away back towards this large island coast. As we turned right towards a much smaller island that wasn't too far away. This island wasn't too large, but it was well forested with long lengths of pebble beaches. But it lacked the large cliff sides that were the main imposing feature of the surrounding islands. There was a small structure, a few dogs, a very large blonde pig, which looked closer to a warthog, both in size and in its large tusks. A small hunched-over elderly man helped us as we secured the boat to a large rock that jutted off the beach. The man took us up to his home and introduced us to his wife. The couple were well into their seventies, and they wore their age with proud and broad wrinkles. They lived alone in a two-room hut. They had no electricity, no telephone. Their only contact with the outside world was these weekly supply drops. They didn't even have a boat of their own. No means of contact to civilization. They were happy to have some company, and we sat by their fire stove and drank mate and wine. I was unable to understand their dialect of Spanish in the least, but Sinai was able to, and she explained what we were researching. They had no idea about the friendship group, but they had seen what we called ovnis, or UFOs. With having no media or any frame of reference for UFO pop culture, they went on to describe large metallic craft that gave off strange colored glows traveling between the islands. They told of one that stopped directly over the island, as if to observe them for a moment. The craft had a blue glow and slowly changed to purple. Underneath the glow, the craft looked metallic and shiny. After they watched the ship hover for a time, they told us the ship quickly moved to the nearby island and lowered itself behind the peaks into a valley at the center of the island, as if to land. The island they described was the one nearby, the one where the dolphins had swam around. A UFO landing on an island in Patagonia fits the description of the island I'm looking for. I even recall De La Fuente mentioning intelligent patrol dolphins that he said guarded the island. However ridiculous it might seem, this pair was certainly credible witnesses, and we had to investigate further. As we continued to visit... I stepped outside and took half a dose of LSD in an attempt to recreate the results of the Colburn experiment. By the time we finished our drinks and headed to leave, 
the effect had taken hold. The island wasn't far off, and we had rented the boat for several more hours, so we prepared to take off to the nearby island to investigate the alleged UFO landing site. As we pulled off the rocks, the engine began to stall, and the tide carried the boat out onto a different set of rocks, slightly submerged just off the coast. We tried repeatedly to restart the engine with no luck. A few times, it would start up for a moment, but disappointedly, it would sputter out. We were able to use the wood paddles to push ourselves off the rocks and beach ourselves on the nearby pebbles. To my knowledge, this makes me the first person to be shipwrecked while tripping on LSD. We attempted to start a fire, but the rains that fell throughout the morning left little dry material to work with. After a while, the right combination of washed-up litter and gasoline, we were able to start a fire. The skipper and his assistant headed down the beach looking for a signal on their cell phones. After a time, a few hours or so, they got a brief signal and got out a short message. A little while later, a towboat pulled around the curve of the channel, and a few moments later we were on our way back to Porto Aguirre. As we passed the island with the cliffs and the supposed UFO landing site, we saw the dolphins were still swimming around the perimeter. A pair of hawks flew out from the island and landed on the towboat in front of us. I couldn't help but think about the tales of supernatural forces that are said to patrol the island and stop those who haven't been invited from visiting. I spent the rest of the night searching the islands and the night sky for any evidence of strange crafts. And while a beautiful night sky filled with stars twinkled back at me, no spaceships were seen that night. My adventure to find the group known as The Friendship will certainly remain a memorable one for me and is my most in-depth investigation to date. So, now comes the question, what conclusions can we draw? Well, my research is mostly that, research. What I found is hundreds of stories, a selection of which you've been listening to throughout this miniseries. But that's about it. Stories. Anecdotes. Of course, there was the one strange photo and a few strange dreams and coincidences. Common occurrences in paranormal investigations. But definitely far from a smoking gun. Nothing that would change the mind of a skeptic. And despite what other investigators might suggest, this is the goal of a paranormal investigator to find proof, proof that is unable to be denied. And I certainly did not find that piece of evidence during this investigation. I don't have a piece of a spacecraft, no photo of a little green man. But it wouldn't be entirely accurate to say that we gathered no evidence. 
Despite what skeptics insist, not all stories are false. And if only 1% of thousands of stories of the friendship are true, then there's still tens of people out there who have interacted with those who claim to be aliens living in Patagonia. And being on the ground in Chile to investigate the case, we have found that only a small percentage of the sightings make it online to the internet. The people who live in and around the UFO hotspots that dot the length of Chile are sure of the existence of these visitors. I personally find the idea of tall, human-like, blonde extraterrestrials improbable. But I had several people tell me face-to-face that they were indeed not only real, but from another world. So with that, let's break down these possible conclusions. The first is that the whole thing's made up. The standard skeptic's explanation. Any and all stories that include UFOs or unexplainable phenomenon in any form are made up. I find this explanation, despite what skeptics might think, fits into the category of dogmatic dismissals. It's the same as the several reports I came across that dismiss the friendship as a secret demonic front run by the devil to fool Christians. This group, like the extreme skeptics, are unwilling to accept any information that doesn't align with their worldview. Any outside information that suggests something contrary to the established viewpoint is denied entirely. And so there's not much point going more in depth into this theory. Perhaps it is true that Chile is simply infested with extremely creative and UFO-focused storytellers working together to push a very elaborate narrative. If it is true, though, props to them, because the Chilean government has bought into these stories enough to create its own UFO research agency, which has gone on to publish videos that baffle aviation experts around the world. To believe this skeptical explanation, one would be putting your belief in a pretty elaborate UFO conspiracy while ignoring a lot of the evidence. So with that, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Let's assume that the friendship group and the bulk of the UFOs are what the friendship claim to be, extraterrestrials. Admittedly, at first glance, this does seem less plausible than the skeptic theory. There are a lot of reasons why, from the various issues that arise when discussing interplanetary travel, to the lack of E.T. life as of yet being discovered. However, most people nowadays do believe that alien life exists somewhere in the universe, and statistics back them up. 
The U.S. Navy has also recently admitted to having spotted several UFOs. And according to the reports, the UFOs seen are usually believed to be unknown vehicles. They've even released videos this year to coincide with these official reports. It's also not the first time the U.S. government has admitted to being aware of the UFO phenomenon. Project Blue Book was a secret project conducted by U.S. Air Force for 18 years, between 1952 and 1970. It was spurred on by airmen who reported seeing the Foo Fighters in World War II, and continued to see strange craft in the skies after. The project had a budget of $22 million and investigated claims of UFO sightings. This was followed by a much newer program in the modern century, ATIP, or the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which has operated since 2002 with a budget of $20 million a year. We also know that France and Chile run their own, less secret, government-run UFO research program. So if most people think there are aliens somewhere in the galaxy, and defense programs around the globe think that UFOs are here and pose a possible threat, then perhaps the alien explanation is not as far-fetched as one might think. The people of Chile also tend to lean towards this extraterrestrial explanation. They seem pretty sure that the Friendship is one of many ET groups visiting the country. However, this often repeated line has little to back it up. The fact is that the Friendship group doesn't even have that strong of a connection to the UFO phenomenon. While many stories connect them to sightings, actual sightings of the members tend to have nothing to do with UFOs. Usually they are met in the streets or in witnesses' homes. If they are seen disembarking from a vessel, it's almost always the mightless too, and never from a long metallic ramp descending from a flying saucer. There is also the issue of evolution. If the friendship group are alien beings, then it's fairly strange that they look exactly like us. Odds are, a completely different planet would have a completely different evolutionary timeline, and the ETs would look nothing like us. Of course, various explanations are put forward to explain this. From Paz's, they are Europeans working for the actual aliens, to some kind of cloaking device that makes them look like human. The most likely catch-all explanation is the friendship group are ETs from a different dimension. They could be from a different version of Earth, which explains their human appearance, as well as explaining other strange details, from the UFO sightings to the hyper-intelligent guard dolphins. If they were from a future or more advanced timeline, it would also explain their advanced medical abilities, one of the most common aspects of the story. But life is rarely black and white, and I believe this to be true for this case as well. 
Could the answer be somewhere in between everyone is lying and interdimensional aliens? So with that, let's examine the gray theories, the theories that don't fit these black or white, true or false explanations. As I've not so subtly hinted throughout this project, there is another human explanation that differs from the everyone is lying theory. Many researchers, including myself, have suggested that escaped Nazis could explain the presence of the friendship group. There are obvious parallels that we have already drawn, like the members of the group sharing the tall, blonde, physical attributes of SS officers. We also have the undeniable fact that post-war Nazis, we also have the undeniable fact that post-war Nazis were living in these countries, and that Nazi submarines were seen in these waters. We even visited an isolated former Nazi compound that existed clandestinely for decades in Chile, the former Colonia Dignidad. The isolated group at Colonia Dignidad was known for their extreme secrecy and for what was at a time a very advanced hospital, where they treated local residents from the surrounding areas, exactly the same as the friendship group. The argument becomes, if there was one group, then it's entirely possible that there was a second one. Colonia Dignidad also operated with the Chilean government's knowledge, and many times its blessing. If Isla Friendship maintained similar ties, then it would go on to explain the stories in which government seemingly lead people astray who are searching for the island. Or perhaps they help the group with some kind of cover-up, like removing the Midalist II's name from official naval records. Speaking of cover-ups, calling yourself an alien from a different world and giving yourself an angelic name might help to erase a darker, Nazi-ish past. But as all theories, this one has its detractors. The first fact to note is the timing. The bulk of the sightings and interactions with the friendship occurred in the 1980s, more than 35 years after the end of World War II and the fall of the Third Reich. Not entirely impossible considering Colonia Dignidad did not start until 15 years after the war. However, Assuming they were escaped officers and or scientists, most of them would be well into the retirement years by the time the sightings started to occur. The people who described encounters with the group sometimes described some of the members as middle-aged, but most of them younger. I haven't found a single description that describes them as elderly. A possible explanation for this could be that the friendship are the children of the original settlement, forced by dwindling supplies to make contact with the outside world for the first time, concocting this alien story to cover up for their parents' crimes. 
However, another counterpoint is the peaceful aura that is said to radiate from the members. This is one of the most common features of the encounters. I personally have met many Germans through my travel, and while many of them are great or fine people, I would certainly say that I would never describe them as radiating a sense of peace, like many described in these encounters. The only human explanation for this would be the group harnessing the effects of some kind of drug, which is not entirely unlikely. A few years after the war, the CIA started Project MKUltra, where they tested various hallucinogenic drugs on unsuspecting victims to, to test the possibility of controlling the human mind. If the Nazis were ahead of their time, which we know they were in many scientific fields, it is possible that they were working on a similar project before the fall of the Reich. If this was true, and the scientists behind that project escaped to Friendship Island, this could explain a variety of strange things that are reported surrounding the group. If they were drugging people they were contacting, then it would explain the strange auras and the UFOs, at least to a certain degree. This could also explain the group's advanced medical knowledge. Or, perhaps as I've previously suggested, the island is where the mythical Nazi bell wound up, and the devices used to pilot real UFOs. Which, admittedly, is probably less likely than LSD Nazis. When I asked most Chileans their opinion on the Nazi theory, most of them denied the idea, choosing to believe the alien explanation instead. This isn't too surprising, as one gets the sense that Chile is constantly trying to downplay and fight to change its authoritarian history and nature. Admitting to a second secret Nazi compound definitely doesn't help this cause. But out of our theories, second-generation Nazi drug cooks is certainly as plausible as thousands of people coordinating elaborate lies, and is definitely more plausible than aliens. To prove this, anyone can easily find a drugged-out white supremacist in any city of the United States. Just look for one. But you can search to the ends of the earth looking for aliens or extraterrestrials and find nothing. Trust me on that one. Finally, there is one more theory that we briefly touched on that falls into this gray area. A theory I find interesting as it's used around the world to explain various strange sightings. This is the idea of what I call evolved folklore. Many different researchers have pointed to various forms of this idea, usually to spin it towards whichever narrative they're spouting. The main idea is that human folklore evolves with the times, that the UFOs we see today are the same phenomenon as the angels, demons, and fairies that people reported seeing in the past. Most researchers 
start to notice these connections pretty quickly when doing in-depth investigations. And it is written about by many minds in the field. Ancient alien theorists point to this well-known phenomenon as evidence that aliens have been visiting Earth since the beginning of human history. Others of more religious ilk use the popularly stated similarities throughout time to state that paranormal events and happenings are all the devil's work. And the theory is used by everyone in between. But just because it's easy to dismiss the people spouting the theory, the theory itself itself should not be dismissed so easily. Because the core of it is true. People see flying saucers today, and people saw, quote, flaming chariots in the past. Essentially, the, the same thing, except with a more modern update. Some say the evolution is only in the language, that they called the UFOs in the past flaming chariots because it was the only point of reference that they had for flying vehicles. But the flaming nature suggests some type of fuel-based propulsion, a feature not noted in the modern saucer sightings. The fact is that evolved folklore theory shows that most of the phenomenon seen appears to be from the not-too-far-off future. In Greek times, any form of rocket propulsion would have been entirely paranormal, and they wrote about it as such. Today, we understand rocket propulsion, so we witness some type of anti-gravity or other form of mysterious propulsion in the flying disks that we see in the sky. This brings us to Kaluche, the ghost ship, which we discussed at the beginning of the episode. We already noted that this spectral ship has the slightly advanced feature of of evolved folklore. It also shares a lot of similarities to the Friendship's Mightalist II. There's also a lot of similarities between the wizards and the sirens associated with Kaluche and the blonde scientists of the Friendship group. So to break it down, a group of wizards with magical powers was believed to pilot an advanced seafaring ship traveling around the fjords making deals with people of the surrounding seaside towns. Today, people see a group of blonde scientists with magical powers piloting advanced aircraft flying around the fjords making deals with the people around Chile. I personally believe this is a clear example of evolved folklore, and I find it particularly odd that this connection has been missed by almost every researcher I've come across that's worked on this case. It seems that this is the most likely explanation, in my mind, that the friendship group is an evolution of the legend of the Kaluche. Perhaps it's a form of generational telephone game, where the legend of wizards slowly turned into aliens over the years. Perhaps it was a mixture of true sightings, whether of actual UFOs or sightings of suspicious-acting escaped Nazis or, most likely, a combination of both, that went on to combine with the legends of the area. 
particularly Caluche, to form this modern-day legend of the friendship. Friends or Fiends is written, directed, and produced by me, Chaz Pilkey. You can find more of my work at chazofthedead.com. Special thanks to my research assistant, Karen. The series is dedicated to my dog, Chewy. He wouldn't have understood any of this. He was a dog. This is our last episode, but not the last time we'll touch on this case. Stay tuned for more info. Please rate and review on iTunes if you enjoyed the show. Special thanks to all of our audience.